Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What am I to do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I will do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred jugs of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred cores of wheat. And he said, Take your bill, sit down, and write eighty. And his master complimented the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it is all gone, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. The one who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And the one who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true wealth to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, good morning. That is an interesting one, isn't it? It is good to be here with you guys this morning. A couple quick comments. Um, uh, Jacob and Beth and their family are away for a few days. They get about a week away in some sunny weather, and so you can pray that they have a really great time. Um, Some much-needed vacation for them, so we're really glad for them for that. Um, I'm really glad to be here with you guys. Um, we're going through this three-week series. We're stepping away from Romans for a few weeks. Um, let Jacob take that over when he gets back. But um, we're taking three weeks here, doing a little brief series, and um, we're talking about some interesting stories, interesting parables that Jesus has told um, in relation to how we relate to him. And uh, this, this is a really interesting story, isn't it? Um, in some ways, I can, can relate a little bit to this story. In some ways, I can't, right? But bear with me. Um, uh, this idea of managing other people's money, uh, one of the things that maybe you don't know about me is that I've had lots of opportunity to manage other people's money. And uh, I was thinking back on it, and I'm pretty sure through the years, I've spent well over $20 million worth of other people's money. 
So, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think it's well over $20 million. So um, back in my 20s, probably when I was too young for someone to have entrusted me with this, I was a textbook manager for Barnes & Noble College bookstores. And what that meant was I would go out and I would talk to the faculty members on campus. I was at Liberty University for a while, and then I was at the University of Northern Colorado. And I would talk to the faculty members on campus, and I'd find out what books they were using for their classes. And then I would... Um, kind of go through and look at sales histories and trends and say, okay, well, I think we need this many books for this particular class based on attendance, whatever. And so then I would pick up the phone and I would call Pearson Education or Thompson Learning or one of these companies and order $200,000 worth of textbooks on the phone right there. And that, was, that was my job for, for quite a while. And so this idea of managing other people's money, like I can kind of relate to that. And it was, it was a little intimidating at times. Um, more recently, I've gotten to be in that role a little bit here. Um, I, uh, through the last few years, have been the one to pick up the phone and say, okay, yeah, we'd like this many chairs for the auditorium, or, or we'd like to order this much carpet. And, and it, it's a lot of money, and it's other people's money, right? And so in, in some ways, I can relate to this story a little bit, but man, this one takes a turn, doesn't it? Um, it this is just such an interesting story. So we're picking up here on a theme that we talked about last week. Um, The theme last week, we were talking about how we are all slaves of a master. Um, Jesus is is the master. We are his bondservants. And so uh, Jesus has purchased our freedom from sin and from death. We we sang some songs about that this morning. Um, He has set us free from that old way of life, that bondage that we were once under. Um, so that we can now serve with joy and with purpose, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We, we have all these amazing new things as we, as we serve Jesus, our King. Um, so here we are, we're looking at another parable about a slave and a master, but this one's just so much different. Um, this one seems, at first glance, to be encouraging dishonesty, right? Um, and I think what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's telling this story in a way that's going to capture our attention because he wants to teach us something really important. And so the point is this, what we're going to see in this story is that we need to prepare for the future kingdom of God. Uh, this, world is in, this world is temporary. We live in this in-between time. The king is returning. And so we need to get ready. We need to be prepared for his return. So Let's pray for just a moment before we dive into this. Um, Let's pray for God's blessing on this. Uh, Father, you are so good. You are so good. And Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity of understanding of your word. Lord, help us to understand this unusual parable that Jesus told. Um, Help us to see how these words give life and truth, how they benefit us. Lord, how they bring honor and glory to your name. And Father, help us to know how to live as as a result of this story. Help us to apply this teaching well to our lives, Lord. We love you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus is such an amazing teacher, uh, he's clearly, obviously, in a category all of his own.
But he has this amazing way of, of telling stories that capture our attention and transform our understanding, change the way we think about things. And in this particular instance, uh, he's speaking very much about how we handle money. How is it that we handle money, and is, are, are we doing it in a way that is, that is appropriate? So in verse 1 here, let me just start here in verse 1, he says, uh, Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Um, that word manager uh, shows up elsewhere as the word steward. It's the same word. Uh, it's somebody who is entrusted with the care of another person's money and possessions. This was a very common role that slaves in the ancient world had. And so it was actually built into the Roman law code that they would have the legal right to act on behalf of, of their master, their, of another person. And so just like I had the opportunity to pick up the phone and call and spend Barnes & Noble's money to order a bunch of textbooks, this guy legally had the right to do all the stuff that he did in this story. He had the right to act on behalf of another person with their stuff. And so uh, this particular steward, though, uh, is accused of squandering his possessions, which is another way of saying he was wasting his money, wasting his master's money. And so we don't know whether he was foolish or unfaithful or just lazy. We don't really know the details. It's not really the point. All we know is that he was such a poor manager of money that charges are coming against him. Uh, somebody has reported to the master what is going on. And so here we see the master's response in verse 2. He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So essentially, this money manager has handled things so poorly that he's getting fired. He's going to lose his position uh, of doing this. And you'll notice that this guy doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't say, no, no, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. Uh, this is actually a critical moment in this story uh, because we see that this, this sneaky manager decides to plan um, in the midst of this. If I were to name this um, parable, I would call it the, the parable of the sneaky manager. Um, and this is really our first hint at the point of this parable because the implied question is this. What will you do when the old system fails? What will you do when the old system fails? And here we find out a lot about this, this guy. So verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So we see there in verse uh, 4 why he's doing this. He's doing this so that they will welcome him into their homes. He's doing this out of self-interest. So here we find something about this manager. He is, he's basically worthless in every way except for one. So he can't dig a hole. That's not hard. 
He, he can't dig a hole. He apparently has no marketable trade. He's really not good at this previous job of, of managing money, and yet he is really good at looking out for his own well-being. He was good at manipulating the system for his own benefit, and that's what Jesus is commending here. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. He's not telling you to go out and cheat your boss. Uh, What Jesus is telling us is to plan ahead for our own future because our time here is limited. Right? Jesus is telling us to plan ahead for our own future because our time here is limited. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 in this really are the key to understanding this passage. So verse 8, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So that probably needs a little explanation, right? There's some parts of that that we're a little uncomfortable with. Um, What Jesus is doing here is he's setting up an analogy, and it's an an analogy between the crisis facing the manager and the impending crisis that we are facing. So in verse 8, Jesus sets up this contrast between the sons of this age and the sons of light, and there's a contrast between these two, between the unbelievers and the believers. And the unbelievers, the the sons of this age, they have a certain set of priorities and values and goals that kind of guide and direct them. And then you've got the the sons of light who are looking forward to the kingdom of God, right, who are believers and trust in Jesus. And they have a different set of goals and values and priorities and all that stuff. And what Jesus shows us through this, this guy, this terrible manager, is that even the lazy and foolish people of this present age know how to handle the system to their own advantage. They know how to work the system. I I love the way the ESV Study Bible explains this. It says, The sons of this age often show more concern and skill in taking care of their earthly well-being than do the sons of light in taking care of eternal matters. So what that's saying then, what Jesus is saying, is that we don't prepare for the future the way we should. That's what he's saying, is that we don't prepare for the future the way that we should. And verse 9 goes on to explain, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does he mean by the wealth of unrighteousness? Well, I don't think what Jesus is talking about there is drug money. Okay, I don't think Jesus is encouraging you to to get involved in organized crime and then use that money for the kingdom of God. Right? That's that's not what he's describing. Rather, what he's talking about is the money of this present world system, which has a tendency to corrupt and even to become an idol in our lives. Um, That's why he goes on to warn later, you've got to choose. You can't do both, right? You've got to either serve God or serve money, but you can't serve both because money has this tendency to creep in and gain more and more influence until it becomes an idol in our life. And so he's warning us against that. But here he says, use that thing. Use that thing that can be so 
bad, it has the potential to be bad, but use it in a way that is for your future, right? That will benefit you in the future. Um, I think a really helpful, helpful illustration that I heard a while back is, imagine if you lived in the South during the Civil War. Um, there was a period of time when uh, in the South they had their own Confederate currency. And for a while, that Confederate cash had value. So imagine if you're like a, a Southern plantation owner, and you have a whole bunch of Confederate cash. But then imagine that you found out that the war is going to be over and it's not going to be worth anything. right? Because as soon as the war was over, that Confederate currency, totally worthless. So what would you do if you were sitting on a large pile of Confederate cash? Well, the best thing you could do is, while you had opportunity, trade it in for something that matters. Right? That's something that's going to have lasting value. So either U.S. dollars or gold or something, right? But don't hang on to your Confederate cash because it's all going to go away. Uh, maybe a more recent illustration. Um, most of us probably heard of the Enron scandal from 20 years ago. So there was a point in time when Enron, this, this large corporation, was doing really well. And in 2000, the year 2000, if you owned stock in Enron, you probably thought you were sitting on a gold mine. Um, for six years in a row, Fortune magazine called them America's most innovative company. Um, the problem was they were innovative in all the wrong ways. They were really creative with their accounting. Um, and so there was a big scandal, and it all fell apart, and they went bankrupt. And by end of 2001, just a year later, it was all worthless. Right? All of it went away. So if you had stock in Enron, the best thing you could do would be to sell it and get out of it because it was, it was a bad idea. What Jesus is saying, the, the point he's making here is that you own stock in Enron, right? It's time to start planning for the coming crisis. You're going to lose it all if you don't act with wisdom right now. And so when the sneaky manager realizes what's happening, he uses his limited time to prepare for his own future. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's really answering the why question. Why do we need to plan ahead for our future? And so he, he tells us that the old system's going to fail, but it's not just that the old system's going to fail. It's also that the new system is better. What's coming, what Jesus is promising, what we get to invest in is better. The old system we know is going to fail, and not just fail to meet our deepest longings, but it's going to fail. It's really going to fail. Um, but there's something better ahead. And so in verses 9 through 11, really that's what Jesus is describing. So we'll, we'll see three different things in this. Um, so let me read 9 through 11 again here. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another, another's, who will give you that which is your own? Let me just point out three things about this. The first thing is that 
what Jesus is pointing ahead to is a wealth, a treasure that will not fail. He speaks of eternal dwellings. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think of my house, I live here in West Richland, I love my house, but I don't think of it as an eternal dwelling. Um, I've had to replace the roof, I've had to replace the heat pump, I've had to, you know, you get the idea. Uh, we had to paint the outside of it. I know that eventually we're going to have to replace the carpet and change, replace the fence. It's, it's not eternal. It, it's wearing out constantly. And so there, there's this recognition that things have to get replaced. Jesus is suggesting that we can invest in something that's not going to wear out like our present home. Um, imagine a home that doesn't wear out. That's really cool. Uh, this is very similar to what Jesus says over in Matthew. Matthew six nineteen to 20. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal instead. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the quote by Jim Elliott, the missionary back in the 50s. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? That's the idea here, is, is we're recognizing this stuff is going away. Let's invest in something that has lasting value. Um, and so the sneaky manager uses his opportunity to invest in something that he can, that he can hang on to. Um, now, it's hard to say, verse 9 is just a, a funny verse. It's hard to say how literally to take this. Is this saying you should give your money to missionaries, for instance, so that when you get to heaven, they'll welcome you over, they'll have you over to their mansion in glory, right? Is that what it's saying? Is it that literal? Maybe, right? We don't, we don't know. I, I don't know much about the conditions in that setting, but what's very clear is we're supposed to use fleeting money to invest in our eternal prospects, right? Plan ahead for something that's going to last. The second thing is he tells us that whatever this is that's coming, this, this treasure that we invest in in the kingdom of God, it has significant value. So he says, uh, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Uh, your money today is the very little thing. <laughs> that's what he's saying, right? So your house and your cars and retirement account or whatever, it's a very little thing. Right? It seems like so much to us, but it's a very little thing compared to the much that lies in store for us. Um, he also tells us that uh, we have the opportunity to get true riches. Right? So what we have right now is fleeting, it's passing, it's, it's a very little thing. He's offering us something that is true and lasting value. Um, the, the last thing is um, verse 12 here. It's actually going to belong to you. Look at verse 12 again. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here's what's implied by that. The wealth that we have right now does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. Uh, We are functioning as stewards, just like this guy. We're managing someone else's stuff. It all belongs to the Lord. But... He's telling us, and we just have to take him at his word, like, 
he's offering us something that will actually be ours in eternity, and it is much, and it is real treasure. It is true and lasting value. And so, um, <laughs> you just have to marvel at this, okay? God is so good that he not only forgives our sin and our, our rebellion against him, he not only died to save us, he welcomes us into his family, and then he says, and, and I will reward you with real value treasure that you get to keep, that is yours. He's just, yeah, so good. So what Jesus is teaching in this parable, let me just kind of summarize this, is that there's a crisis coming. Uh, this present world system will fail, and if you put your hope in this stuff, it's all going to let you down. It's, it's going to be lost. You can't take it with you. Um, he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? None of that matters. Um, but then he's, he goes on to say, really, even though you can't take it with you, you can send it on ahead. Uh, those who are wise will take this stuff and use what chance they have with it to invest in the coming kingdom. And then he concludes by saying you have to choose between serving money and serving God. Think of it this way. Will you serve the old master or will you serve the new one, right? Are you going to serve money or are you going to serve King Jesus? And what Jesus is saying is you need to move on, right? This is not working. The old master, the old system is going to fail you. So move on, plan ahead, plan for your own benefit, and invest in the kingdom of God for his glory. And so that's really what what Jesus is doing is he's telling us the why. Why should I, in this present age, forget about all that stuff, cheat the system in a sense, right? Don't put your value on that. Instead, look to Christ and look to his kingdom and how you can glorify him through your use of money, something as, as little as money. And so, this is an interesting one because in some ways I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, right? Like I know that there are are people, a lot of people here in this church, I'm assuming, who are very faithful in their giving. Um, Here in just a few weeks, we're going to have our annual meeting and we'll give our, you know, reports for the year. Um, I don't get to see who's giving what. Jacob doesn't get to see who's giving what. But we know that somehow a lot of people must be giving because the church has done well. And so we have, you know, we're eight and a half years old. We own a building. Um, We've been able to do a bunch of renovations, really good things happening. Um, So I know that many of you are faithful in in your giving. Um, So I don't know who is and who isn't, right? So don't don't see me pointing fingers or anything like that. Um, But there is this recognition, right? We have this, this glorious opportunity to use our stuff to invest in the kingdom of God. And so for some of you, this may just be a like hoorah message. Good job. Keep going. Get after it. Um, Enjoy this. Um, For others of you, it might be a challenge. And you're saying, you know what? I haven't been doing that. Um, And that's to my discredit. And I need to learn from this. And so I don't know where you're at in that, but I know many of you are doing really well with this. Um, And so this second part for some of you might, might be unnecessary, but I think there's some value in all of this for for us. Um, The first question we're asking here is why. But what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is talk just a little bit about the how. Okay, so we we got the why. We should invest in the kingdom of God, but how do we go about doing that? What does that look like 
in really practical terms. And so I want to just answer three questions. Who should we give to? When should we give? And how much should we give? Okay, so we're going to talk through those three things. So the first thing is who should we give to? Um, I get letters in the mail, maybe you guys do too, um, asking for money. I get lots of letters in the mail asking for money. Um, I think about 15 years ago, Kim and I gave money to the Denver Rescue Mission. And we still get letters in the mail from them. We haven't given to them forever. I don't even know that we gave them a lot of money when we first gave. Probably not. But we're still getting letters in the mail from the Denver Rescue Mission from when we lived back in Colorado. Um, I could probably name a dozen different organizations that regularly send us mailers asking for money. Um, In addition to that, uh, I have a bunch of friends, we have a bunch of friends who are missionaries, and occasionally they let us know about their needs. Um, We also happen to be members of this church, (laughs) and this church has needs. Um, And beyond that, there's like the needs of the world, right, which seem endless to the extent that Jesus was able to say, the poor will always be with you. You're not going to fix the problem. No matter how much you give, the, the poor will always be with you. So that makes it kind of daunting, right? So when I get that letter in the mail from the Denver Rescue Mission or whoever, how do I decide who I'm going to give to? And so what I want to talk through is, is um, a few of the priorities that the Bible gives for who we should give to. So the very first one is actually your own family. So it's 1 Timothy 5.8. Um, 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Don't hold back, Paul. Tell us what you really think. Right? He's, he's just really direct on this. You have to take care of your own family. Right? So if, if your kids don't have food, that's a problem. Now, it's not saying that everybody in your family has to have the latest iPhone, but it is saying you better take care of the needs of your family, right? There's an expectation there. Um, the, the second thing is those who are in gospel ministry, beginning with your own local church. So let me go through a, a few passages of Scripture here. Um, the first one is Galatians 6.6. 6. And Galatians 6.6 6 says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches them. So what's implied there is Jacob gets up here and speaks every week. We need to make sure that we take care of Jacob so that he can keep doing that. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.11 If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So the implication here is that As your church is investing in you spiritually, you ought to support your church, right? The the people who are are doing this work, those who are in gospel ministry. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, the context there is interesting. I didn't read all of it. Paul is speaking to the folks in Corinth, and he's saying those in gospel ministry have a right to be paid for their gospel ministry, right, to make their living in this way, even though Paul in Corinth chose not to. And he chose not to because there was a specific situation there where there were false teachers and they were in it for the money and they're trying to to basically scam everybody and get their money. And Paul says, okay, in Corinth, I'm not going to ask for any money 
I'm not going to let you give me any money because I don't want to be accused of that same thing. But elsewhere, Paul did receive those gifts. So look at Philippians, Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. Uh, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So the idea here is we have a responsibility first and foremost to take care of those who are ministering to us, and then we also have the opportunity, even, even uh, more than an opportunity, maybe a, an expectation that we would then also support others who are in gospel ministry. And so um, very similar to this idea, you've got to take care of your family first, right? So there is an expectation that you take care of those locally, but then you also have an opportunity to go beyond that. Um, another category, so we're, we're giving to our own family, providing for our own family, we're giving to those in gospel ministry, um, but we're also supposed to give to the poor. And so let me, let me read a few passages there. Uh, Luke 14, 12 through 14, Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. They can't pay you back for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Give to the poor, and God will reward you for it. Right? That's the idea. Give to the poor, and God will reward you for it. Um, This shows up actually quite a bit in Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul went around to all these different cities around the Roman Empire, and one of the things that he did is he took a contribution, he took a, a donation for the saints who were back in Jerusalem who were poor. So Romans 15, 25 to 27, Paul says, Now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And so that shows up quite a few times in Acts and in different things that Paul writes. He mentions, it, mentions this. Um, one other thing about this, Galatians 6.10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it's that same principle again, right? You've got to take care of your own family first, right? Well, we're supposed to take care of the poor, especially those who are believers, Right? First, take care of your own family. Recognize the poor will always be with you. There is unlimited opportunity to give to the poor. So first, let's take care of those who are poor among us, and then let's consider other needs, right? So who should we give to? We should give to those in our own family, meet their needs. We're supposed to give those in gospel ministry first locally and then abroad. Um, Who should we give to? We should give to the poor, first believers, and then non-believers So those are some of the guidelines that Scripture gives us, but that doesn't really fully answer the question, does it? Right? Do we know for sure who we should give to? And and this is where it comes down to, it's it's you and God deciding how you are going to be a steward with your money. 
right? You got to pray. You got to depend on the Holy Spirit. You got to say, God, what would you have me do? Who should I give to? Um, and ultimately, you, you get to be a steward. You're a manager of your own, of, uh, your own finances. Um, so when should we give? Um, 1 Corinthians 16 talks about this, this contribution for the saints in Jerusalem again. And here's what Paul tells those folks in Corinth. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So the first day of the week, every Sunday, was when they would gather together for worship. And Paul says, okay, when you're getting together for worship, which you do, uh, that's the time that you should give. That's a convenient time. Everybody's in one spot. Do it then. That way, when Paul shows up later, they aren't scrambling, going, oh, oh, man, what are we going to do? And so the same thing would carry over for us today. You know, when, when the light bill comes, that's not the time to take the collection, right? The time to take the collection is every Sunday. Just build it into your regular schedule. Um, it's kind of similar to the idea in the Old Testament of first fruits. And the way first fruits worked was at the beginning of the season, when they would bring in their harvest, the first thing that they were supposed to do was to take of their grain or their wine or their oil or, or whatever and give a portion to the Lord first. That carries over to us in that we should write out that check that we're giving to the Lord first before we pay all of our bills. So it's not like, okay, so I'm going to pay for my, my mortgage and our bills and our groceries and all that, and if there's a little bit left over, maybe I'll give that to the Lord. Right? Now, what, what's expected is we're going to set aside money for the Lord first, which takes a little bit of planning ahead and thinking about this, but set those things aside for the Lord first. Um, okay, one last question about this is how much should we give? That's the big one, isn't it? Oh, man, he had to go there. Um, 2 Corinthians 9 is, is really helpful for this. 2 Corinthians 9. And actually, if you want to dive into this, this topic, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul talks a whole bunch about this. It's really great stuff. Um, so this is what he says. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I don't think many of us sow and reap, but the idea is planting seeds and then gathering your harvest at the end. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. How much should we give? In the Old Testament, uh, it was pretty simple and clear. It was a tithe. It was 10%. You give 10% to the temple, takes care of the Levites. That's how they did it. In the New Testament, we're not given a, a clear, simple percentage. This is what you have to do because we're not under law. We're under grace. Instead, what we're told to do is to give generously, bountifully and cheerfully. Um, that's the idea here. So if you think about it, like which is a, which is a 
higher, better system, law, or grace. Like, we've got so much good under Jesus. So when we come to this point and we're thinking about what does it look like to generously give back to the Lord, it's probably not a lower standard than the Old Testament, right? So maybe 10% is a starting point for you. I don't know. But what does it look like for you to give generously and cheerfully? Uh, um, As I think about that this morning... um, I've been thinking about examples of this, and there are examples throughout history of of people who have given a reverse tithe. They've given away 90% and kept 10%. God has blessed them to the extent that they're able to do that. Um, I know that many people in here are generous, and I mentioned that earlier. I I know that many of you are generous and have have given much, Um, but I think the ultimate example is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. And track with me on this. Jesus gave everything. He gave his whole life. He did all of it for the glory of God the Father. But it, it wasn't that he did it under compulsion, right? So, so this says you're not supposed to give uh, grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, Hebrews says that the reason Jesus was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame, was because of the joy that was set before him, right? Jesus was a cheerful giver. Jesus gave because of the recognition of what lay in store for him. And so I would just encourage you guys, um, this, is, this is maybe an unusual message. We don't spend a whole lot of time around here talking about money and asking you guys to give money. Um, and this is not predicated on, we're having a hard time paying the light bill. Um, This is just a recognition that this is one area of discipleship, and this is one area that we can worship and and serve the Lord. Um, So as you think about this, man, I hope that that this can be an area of joy for you, where you can cheerfully give to the Lord and say, man, it is such a cool opportunity to take such a little thing as money and invest in something so much better. Um, And I hope you find joy in that. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father... Lord, this morning for the amazing truth, Lord, that you can use us and use our our worldly wealth for your glory. And Lord, money does have that corrupting influence and it can so easily control and direct our lives, Lord, but, but we serve the risen King and we're looking ahead to your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that we would use um, our money to bring honor and glory to your name. Because, Father, uh, you are worth, are worthy of our worship, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of our worship. And so I pray, Father, this morning that our hearts would be turned to you, Lord, that you would use our resources um, as we steward them for your glory, Lord, that you'd use our resources um, to, to bring great honor to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.